Well, good morning. Thank you for being here. If you've noticed, in the last couple of weeks as we've gone through Luke, Jesus and his followers are actually in the temple. And we're within just a few days of his death and his resurrection. So the things he's telling them are things that he wants to make sure that they understand before those major events happen. Well, today, the passage that we're looking at in Luke, they're not only in the temple, but Jesus is talking about the temple. And he's doing that because he wants to help them understand exactly what, or better, who they trust and why. So as you're here this morning, I wonder, has anyone ever asked you why you believe that God is who he says he is? Or maybe why you believe that the Bible is true? Or maybe why you believe that that Jesus is the only way, that he's your savior. Maybe you're here this morning because those are questions that you're wrestling with. And you're trying to find out if this book might have those answers. You know, and sometimes, probably I've answered this way, but definitely sometimes when I've asked this question, the response you get when you ask somebody, why do you believe that, can sound something like, well, I don't know, I've, I've just always believed. Or... Well, the Bible says it, so I believe it. And you should believe too. (laughs) Right? And there's, there's, you know, there's part of me that like, I wish it was that simple for me, but the reality is in my own life, I've had those times of doubts, those times of questioning, those times where I want to make sure if I'm really going to hinge my life on who Jesus claims to be, I'd like a little more evidence, something a little more factual. Belief, yes, but some, some kind of proof too. Because what happens is, if we feel like we haven't gotten a good answer for that, we end up trying to find other things to replace Jesus that sound like they might make more sense. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you do believe that. You'd say, I would affirm all of those things. Jesus is Lord. I believe him. He's my king. And yet you find there are places in your lives where you are replacing him. What controls you becomes fear, anxiety, workaholism. Some of these things that we feel like if I just work a little bit harder, then I'll feel safe. Then I'll feel secure. Then I'll know that the future is going to be okay. But Luke is going to record Jesus' own words in this passage and make a bold claim that Jesus is irreplaceable. That whatever questions we ask, whatever doubts we have, whatever things we wrestle with, Jesus himself is irreplaceable. Now that's a big claim to make, So let's just read this passage. I want you to see how he does this. So we're in Luke chapter 21 today, starting with verse 5. It says, Then as some spoke of the temple, remember they were in the temple in this moment, then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near. Therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines, and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. 
And so imagine this moment for a minute. They just saw this woman that we talked about last week generously giving her last two mites. And as they walk through this beautiful temple, they comment, isn't this place beautiful? Like, wouldn't it just be so fitting for Jesus to say, it is, isn't it? What a cool place to be able to come together and worship God. And instead he goes into all this stuff about how it's going to be thrown down and how there's going to be famine and pestilence and war. And, and I mean, what he says specifically, when, when they say it's adorned with beautiful stones, they're right. Because the temple originally, as built by Solomon, was a good thing. All right, so Jesus is not picking on the temple. In fact, God commanded Solomon to build the temple. And when he did that, he instructed them how to use all of the finest materials that they had available to build a beautiful place for God to meet with his people, for them to worship him. That original temple was eventually destroyed as God's people were carried off into captivity. When they returned to rebuild the temple, it was a much more modest version of its original floor plan. And so, in about 19 BC, Herod the Great shows up, and in an effort to win over popular opinion, he says, you know, if I really want the Jewish people to like me, I gotta build out the temple. So he takes what was a relatively modest temple and he starts this massive addition project and makes it larger and more beautiful than ever before. And at this point that Jesus is speaking, as they are standing in the temple on this very day, they're about 46 years into this construction project and they don't actually finish for about 20 more years. Josephus actually describes the temple this way. He lived uh, at this time. And he says that the temple was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun, it reflected back a fiery splendor, made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But the temple appeared to strangers when they were still at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt with gold, they were exceeding white with marble. So this picture here probably doesn't do it justice, but I wanted you to at least have an idea of the kind of thing. Because this is just one portion of that temple that they would have been seeing as they walked through with Jesus. And then Jesus says, Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. All right, so Jesus, I don't know what you think they're doing with the chisels and the hammers, but they're not throwing it down. They're actually building it right now. Right? They're mid-construction, and Jesus is already talking about when it's going to be gone. And notice, he doesn't say the stones are going to wear down. He doesn't say they're going to fall down. He says, not one stone shall be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, if that happened... That would be faith-shaking for them. Because the temple for God's people had always been a picture of God's presence with them. If you want to know if God is with you, you can go to the temple and be sure. Because this is the place he gave us. This is the place he built. And what's really interesting about this is that when his people were in exile, when they couldn't get to the temple because they'd been carried away to other nations, we hear in the Old Testament their words of, how can we worship God if we can't be in the temple? How can God save us if we can't be in the place where God is with us? But if you go back to 2 Samuel 7, when God actually starts to instruct David, hey, you're not going to build the temple your son is, before Solomon's even born, God actually says, hey, don't forget, I've never had a house before. We used that tent for a while, but 
I'm not contained by some building, and yet I am going to build one because I want you to know I'm with you. Same thing he spoke through his prophets. He reminded them, I was never contained by a building. The temple was never the only place that God could be. He's constantly telling them, I am with you wherever you go. In fact, in this moment, as they walk through the temple, if the temple represents that God is with us, think about who they're walking through the temple with. Jesus, who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. Despite all the beautiful stones, he's trying to demonstrate for them that that's not where their trust is. You see, and this is kind of the problem when the things we have built up, even if they're good things, like the temple was, that's kind of the problem with the things that we build up begin to replace who Jesus is. That their focus had become more on the building where they could meet God than actually meeting God. And so here's one thing I think Jesus wants us to hear in this. And the reason he says that instead of, yeah, it's pretty, is because the good things that you build can be thrown down. And that's not to say they aren't good things. And so as I was kind of thinking through this this week, one of the uncomfortable and strange things that always happens is I I try to think of examples to, to help you guys think through this. And then God always makes me think about those things too. (laughs) Because he wants to challenge us in this area because the temple's a good thing. God tells them to set it up, but if it replaces him, it can be thrown down and it might need to be. And so I wonder, as you look at your own life, what are the things that you would point to, the good things, that you would say, your business is going well, your family, whatever that is, that you would point to and say, God is good. And would you say something different if it all fell apart? Am I putting my hope in things that I build? Am I trying to replace my Savior? Or am I really focused on Him? Am I putting my hope in my business, in my career? Like, is that where my comfort or my security comes from? Because that can fall down. That can be thrown down. Or, or maybe it's my education or my reputation. Because even if I lost my job, I have this degree from over here, I got this degree from over here, I've got connections, I'm going to be okay. Or sometimes it is even our family. You know, as our kids get older, and maybe you've wrestled with this too, there's times where it feels like my worth as a dad depends on like, their grades or their behavior or even what they believe. Do I put my hope, do I put my joy in my kids' ability to be who I hope they'll be? Or in my own health? Or in my relationships? And listen, all of these things are good things. These are things that God gives us. These are things that God wants to build into our lives. These are ways that God wants to bless us. But even these good things can be thrown down. And then we have to ask, where is my hope? Who is my Savior? Is it really the irreplaceable Jesus? Because that's exactly what happened with the temple. In fact, Jesus is making this prophecy that not one stone will be left on another about 30 years before the Jewish war with Rome. And still standing today, there's a monument called the Arch of Titus. 
Now, Titus, at this point, was a general. He would later be Emperor Titus Vespasian. But at that point in history, in about 69 AD, there's a Jewish rebellion going on. And so he's tasked by the Roman Empire, General Titus, you've been doing great work. Here's what we want you to do. Go to Jerusalem and put down the rebellion. All right, so when he gets to uh, Jerusalem, and that's what this was built to commemorate, was, was his rule, and part of his primary success was in putting down that rebellion. What's very interesting is that history records that Titus did not want to destroy Jerusalem. And he did not want to destroy the temple. In fact, throughout the historical records of this moment, there are repeated opportunities where Titus tries to let the people in Jerusalem surrender and basically says, hey, if you surrender now, we'll just call this thing off. But actually, Jesus' words won out (laughs) because they didn't surrender and the Roman soldiers end up destroying the city. We'll hear more about that in a couple weeks and destroying the temple. Now, this is significant because Jesus was very specific about what was going to happen. He said not one stone would be left on another. You know, part of the reason he does that, part of the reason he gives us prophecy is so that we can be certain about who Jesus is. That if I'm going to say Jesus is the Savior, I want that to be more than just because, like, Drew said so. Right? That I can look at Jesus' actual words and say, if he prophesied that, does that come true? And this is not like Nostradamus type stuff. Like, if you actually read Nostradamus, because sometimes we get like, ooh, how did he see that coming? He is so vague, you could pin that to almost anything in any decade since he's lived. Jesus is so specific that after the destruction of the temple, you would only have to find one stone still on top of another stone to prove him wrong. And these stones were massive, like dozens of feet long and wide and high. These don't fall down. These wouldn't wear away. This was done on purpose. And we don't know exactly why they were torn down, but archaeological evidence shows us that the entire building was leveled to the ground, not one stone on the other, to the point that we are not even exactly sure where the temple sat at that time. You know, one of the reasons might be, as you actually walk through this arch, On one side, there is a detail of Roman soldiers, you can go ahead and click that one, carrying out gold pieces from the temple. Romans were so thirsty for gold that one of the things they actually would do is, when people did come out of Jerusalem to surrender, they would hide gold pieces by swallowing them. Well, once the Romans found out that there was gold inside these Jewish people, I'll spare you the details, but let's just say they got the gold. And so some people speculate that the reason the stones may have been torn down was because as all of those gold plates that Josephus described melted as the temple burned, they may have pulled down the stones to get at the gold inside. For whatever reason they did it, we know that they did. Jesus' words, spoken about three decades before this happened, was proven true in every detail. That matters if we're going to trust him. It matters if he's right. If you and I looked at this today and said, oh, that is so weird that he said that because the temple was never destroyed, then really we should just close this book and leave because if he was wrong, if he lied, then why would I trust him and why should you? But if he's right, and they could see this within their own lifetime, then you start to say, what else did he say? 
because he might be right about that stuff too. And so it's no surprise then in verse 7 that his, his disciples, his followers want to know, if this is really happening, like when's that going to happen? What signs should we be looking for? Because it looks beautiful right now and it's not even done yet. That sounds crazy. So tell us, Jesus, tell us more. And notice what he says to them is, take heed that you not be deceived. Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. You know, we sang a lot about Jesus' name this morning. A powerful name, a wonderful name, the name above all names. That it's the only name, Acts says, by which we must be saved. And so Jesus is warning them, hey, when this scary stuff happens, as history moves on, there are going to be people who come in my name and try to get you to follow them. So take heed to yourself. That word really means slow down, think about yourself. Not just check the circumstances, check the archaeology, see if that stuff's really true, but look at yourself as well. How well do you know what God has said? How well do you know God? So that if someone else shows up pretending to be Jesus, do you know the difference between a fake and the real Jesus? Because part of this too, this idea of his name, his name is not just like my name's Drew and, and his name's Jesus. It's his reputation. It's his character. It's who he is. That others will come to try to say, I'm the savior. I've got the way. Don't worry about this Christian thing anymore. You can follow this. This is just as good. The time is now. The reality is, our world is looking for a lot of saviors. Sometimes that's unintentional. You know, it's those things like our careers or our families, whatever that is that we end up replacing God with that takes first place in our lives. Other times it's, it's much more obvious. You know, when you look at world religions and see how many different ways people claim there are to get to God or to get to heaven. Jesus is saying, it's only me. And that can be hard for us to kind of process, especially because in our culture, we, we champion, you know, I believe what I believe, but you can believe what you believe, and I'll respect you. And there's something healthy in that, because it is important to respect other people. And I think that it's not helpful if we just go out combatively, you know, ripping everybody else apart. And yet, we have to deal with what Jesus says. Because the truth is, if you look at any of those major world religions— None of them say, we could be one of your options. <laughs> right, so for every time that you hear someone say like, hey, we all just believe our own things, we all can find our own way to God, like, pick out any of those things that claim to be the way to God, and none of them agree with that. Right, it's sort of this weird, illogical thing that we have done, and the Bible is no different. It claims that Jesus is the only way. And that can be hard for us, because if I say that I'm a follower of Christ, but I care about people who aren't, it feels like God doesn't care about those people. Like, how, how can I wrap my head around God sending my friend to hell just because they didn't believe in Jesus? Especially because they're a really nice person. They're actually nicer than a lot of the Christians I know. But built into that is this assumption that we think God doesn't care about our friend. When the reality is he cares so much that he came in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the temple on earth, the presence of God, to die and rise again so that we could join him forever. I had a conversation with a friend, um, I guess it's been ongoing for a couple years, but you know, one of the things that he was explaining to me, he, he called himself a Christ follower. He said, yeah, I'm a Christian. 
And I wasn't necessarily surprised by that, but there were some other things he'd said that I wasn't sure exactly what he meant by that. And so I just asked him, kind of that question that I referenced before. Hey, what does that mean to you to say, I'm a Christian? Like, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my king. Do I, do I talk to him? Do I, or is it like, you know, when I fill out paperwork, you know, religious preference, you know, Christian. And so what he told me was, well, my parents were both Christians, and so I've just always been a Christian. You know, I grew up Christian, but I figure if I was born somewhere else and my parents were something else, I'd probably be something else too. And I've got to think that a creative God would be able to have more than one way to get to heaven. But for a second, that sounds so logical. <laughs> but there's a reality to the fact that you know, one of his examples was if he'd been born to Muslim parents, they probably would teach him Islam, and he may have started that way. But again, you hear in that answer, like somebody who hasn't challenged their own faith. Like my parents were Christians, and if I tell you that, that I believe because I guess I'm supposed to because they did, I don't know about you, but that doesn't get me very far. You know, there's places where I want to say, okay, now to find out if I really mean that. And the deeper that I've dug into this book, the deeper I've poured into history, the more that I've looked at what Jesus actually said, the more I've been convinced that he is who he says he is and that he is the only way. Now, I know that that can sound really offensive. <laughs> I know that that sounds really exclusive. And, and so one thing that we've got to deal with is, did Jesus actually say that? His, his followers absolutely believed it. They taught that. But we only have to go to John 14, 6. You heard Neil read John 1 earlier to see that Jesus himself said this. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now think about that statement. Because it sounds really exclusive, and at times in our culture, there is literally nothing worse you can do than be exclusive, right? But it depends what you mean by exclusive. Because Jesus is absolutely excluding all of the other ways to come to God. All of the other ways to come to heaven. If anybody tells you it's anything besides Jesus, Jesus says, no, it's not. I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. In that sense, it is exclusive. But it's not exclusive when it comes to people. Even though there is only one way, even if the path is narrow, there is room and there is time on that path for everyone to come to the Father through Jesus Christ. Sometimes this conversation gets mixed up because we think that if he excludes these other ways, it means he's excluding these other people, and that's not true. That is not in this book. It helps me to think about it this way. Imagine that you have a loved one trapped in a burning building. And you know... Because you've already looked around trying to figure out how can we get them out. The back door is not going to work. The front door is not going to work because the stairs are on fire and they're upstairs. So whatever else sounds like it might make sense, do not try to come down those stairs. The flames are rising. The smoke is rising. Really, the only option you have is to jump out of this window. Now, in that moment, compassion, inclusiveness is not saying... Now, personally, I think that the window is the best way. But there might be other ways, and we all kind of find our own ways out of the burning building. So, you know, see what you can figure out, and, and we'll just all find out 
once the building's done burning down. And I don't mean to be cavalier about this. I mean, I don't mean to be insensitive. But that's the kind of crisis moment that we are in where Jesus is saying, I care about you too much to just see if you figure out if those other ways work and let you burn to death on the way down the stairs. Right? If I'm a firefighter, if I'm at that house, like the best thing that I can do is tell you, do not come down the stairs. I know it sounds like a good idea, but that is not the way to be saved from this situation. You have to jump out this window and you have to trust me that I will catch you. That is compassion. That is love. That is why Jesus says, take heed, do not be deceived. So wherever you stand this morning, like maybe you hear that and you're like, yes, that totally makes sense. That's why I believe that. I'm, I'm on board. Good, be affirmed. You know, maybe you're still asking those questions. You want to dig more into that. I'd say, God is not afraid of your questions. He is not afraid of your doubts. He would love to talk to you more about that. So would I. Or if I'm too intimidating, you know, talk to the, the friend or the family member who brought you. You know, pursue that. Because if I'm going to reject Jesus, I want to do it based on what Jesus said. If I'm going to accept Jesus, I want to do it based on what Jesus said. And that's really what he means when he says, take heed to yourself. Spend time, myself, not just kind of hearing what people say about Jesus, but get to know Jesus himself. Get to know God directly. Because then in verses 9 through 11, really the last thing that he gives them is he gives them this picture of all these terrifying things that are going to happen. Wars, pestilence, famine. He says all these things have to come first. So even before that temple thing that he just told him about, some of these things will happen first. He says specifically, there will be fearful sights. And yet he says, do not be terrified. Like, I think I'd like it better if he said, don't be terrified. Nothing scary is going to happen. Right? Like when my kids can't fall asleep, don't be terrified. There's not really monsters. There's no bugs in your bed. Just go to sleep. Jesus says, scary things are coming. Terrifying stuff is going to happen. But this is another piece of why prophecy is so valuable. One, it's to prove him right. But it's also for encouragement. Because if he knows these things are coming, he wants to make sure they understand that. So that when the moment comes, this verb, do not be terrified, is actually phrased as a possibility. Fearful things will happen. One thing that might happen is you might be terrified. So don't. Don't be. It's meant to be an encouragement for them. And actually a number of these things, again, when you look back at the historical record, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD in the midst of that Roman-Jewish war. But some of these things had already been fulfilled. There was a massive earthquake in Phrygia in 61 AD. 63 AD is when Mount Vesuvius erupts and leaves half of Pompeii in ruins. There have been famines in the reigns of Emperor Claudius and Emperor Nero. And you're in the midst of the Roman Empire, so nation against nation is like all the time. But they didn't even have to look further than their own war between the Romans and the Jewish people. So God is telling them the things that you build up cannot become a replacement for me. Even other people, other saviors, cannot be a replacement for me. Even when the circumstances around you feel like they are completely out of control and nothing could be more terrifying, even fear can't replace him. He is the irreplaceable Jesus. And so I wonder for you and I, as you think about this, 
You know, I asked my wife earlier this week, I was kind of trying to find, like, what would be a story that I could share where somebody had experienced those kinds of things? Because there's times for all of us in our lives where we feel like our circumstances are like that. And she shared a story with me about a, ma- a man named Horatio Spafford. Now, Horatio was a high-powered attorney in Chicago, very successful. He was also a real estate investor, and he was investing in Chicago at a time that it was rapidly expanding north. So he was highly successful. Things were going very well. Um, Happily married, had four daughters and a son. If you can imagine, four daughters and a son. (laughs) It's one of those things where, like, he was even a Christ follower, very generous to, to God's work in Chicago. And so as you looked at his life from the outside in, you would say, now there is a man who has been blessed by God. But that's actually not the end of his story. In fact, in 1871, the great Chicago fire happened. And literally, all of his investments, everything he had built up, every stone was thrown down. Everything he'd built up literally burned to the ground. Definitely a low point. But that wasn't the end of his story either. His two-year-old son died of tuberculosis. Not long after that, Horatio planned to take a trip to England with his family. And when he was delayed by some of this real estate stuff that was going on, he went ahead and sent them forward and agreed that he would meet them there in a couple of weeks. So his wife and daughters got on a ship, and as their ship crossed the Atlantic Ocean, about halfway across, they struck another ship. And their ship sank in 12 minutes, killing 266 passengers including all four of his daughters. Only his wife survived, found floating on a piece of wreckage. When she got to England, she sent him a one-line telegram, saved alone, what do I do? So Horatio dropped everything else that he had going on and he got on a boat to go over to England and to bring his wife home. And as he crossed the Atlantic, the captain of his ship told him when they were passing the point where his daughters had drowned. And as he went over that piece of water, Horatio wrote what has become one of the most enduring, inspirational, powerful and one of my personal favorite songs in the history of the church. When he faced all of these things, when everything he had built and everything that he had loved was falling apart, crashing down, Horatio wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. If you're familiar with that song, the first verse says, When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. You see, this is not a guy who's just plugging his ears, la, 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 pretend that the world isn't there, pretend that things didn't happen. You can't block that stuff out. But in that moment, He knew a deeper truth 
like Luke, by the Spirit and the words of Jesus, has been telling us this morning. A deeper truth about who Jesus was as his Savior. Because in fact, as you sing the rest of the song, none of the rest of the, of the words that he wrote on that journey are about pain or unfairness or where is God. In fact, in the second verse he wrote, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. In the third verse, one of my favorites, he says, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And in the final stanza of that song, he chose these words because he had a confidence that went beyond this life. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He had a hope in his Savior for himself for his wife, for his family, that went beyond any circumstance here. So I don't know what you have faced. I don't know what you will face. I do know that in the passages and the weeks ahead, Jesus is going to tell us some things that are going to take courage. They're going to take a confidence in who he is. That we would not be afraid. That we would not be deceived. But that we would trust the irreplaceable Jesus. Can we pray that way right now? Our Father, who art in heaven, your name is holy. Lord, you know everything that we are facing in this room. You know everything that we might face. You know how confusing it can be at times in, in our world and with our friends and in our own thoughts to really understand who Jesus is and if he really is who he said he is. And so God, I pray that even in these moments we might have a little more confidence, a little more certainty, a little more evidence to trust that you are who you say you are and that in you I am who you say I am. Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. Haste that day when we will see you in all of your glory, in your kingdom, with all the pain, all the betrayal, all the sorrow, everything broken, stripped away. Lord, help us to face difficult circumstances with courage, to not be afraid, to not be deceived, but to trust you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I want to thank you for being here this morning and for going on this journey with us. As you walk out today, you're going to hear a version of that song, It Is Well. And so I would encourage you, take that with you, knowing that it can be well with your soul as you leave this morning. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week.